0: Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'm joined by Professor Ada Ferrer, the Julius Silver Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean Studies at New York University. We'll talk about her new book, Cuba in American History, which was published in 2021 by Simon & Schuster. Ferrer's book is a history of the island from the era of European conquest to present day. Her approach to narrating five centuries of history, however, doesn't just focus on familiar political figures or abstract historical forces. Instead, Ferrer positions the experiences of the enslaved, women, school teachers, and her own family at the center of the book. And as much as this is a history of Cuba, it is also a history of the United States. Rare surprises the reader with fascinating moments of convergence between the history of the two countries throughout, going beyond just familiar geopolitical flashpoints. The result is a finely crafted and deeply personal book that encourages readers to recognize Cuba's contested history and its multiple identities. Ada, welcome to the show. Oh,
1: thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. I wanted to begin on, on the personal note because it is such a prominent part of the introduction, and obviously something you kind of weave throughout um, your previous two books were, you know, written for university presses it um, kind of followed those conventions. This book, you're trying to speak to a, a more general audience um, and you weave in your family's uh, own personal experiences throughout. I just wanted to ask what it was like uh, to write such a personal book, especially in light of, you know, having the experience of mostly writing uh, things that were more academic monographs.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean... It- On one level, it wasn't that different. It was still, you know, me doing research and doing a lot of reading and focusing on the writing and how to tell a story, right? So, you know, definitely overlapped um, thematically, methodologically, empirically with work I'd done before. But I also feel like so much of what brought me to Cuban history to begin with is personal. And I felt like that was something that, in my earlier books, was there, but so so buried under under you know under archives and historiography that I I didn't call attention to it. The most personal I got in those books was really in the acknowledgments, and so I felt like it, it was there all along, and that um, this was a, just a chance to to bring it out. Also, in part because of the focus of the book, in a sense about you know writing. Cuban history for an American audience. It's kind of a work of translation of moving back and forth between the two countries. And that whole experience just for me is so inextricably linked to the way I grew up and the way I've lived my life always between these two countries and translating for my parents and for people in Cuba and for the US. And and so it just felt like the book was deeply linked to who I am as a historian and, and, and as a person.
0: So would you say that the experience of, of writing this book with its you know, very, very sweeping book and also a more personal one, did it change the way you kind of view Cuban history more generally? Are there things that surprised you in the process of writing it that you hadn't really perhaps thought about as much in your earlier work?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, a lot surprised me. I, you know, I thought I knew Cuban history really well going into the project, which is part of what made me think I could do it, but i learned so much uh doing it and researching, reading for it. Also writing in terms of what surprised me, um the depth of the longevity, you know, the, the the how far back the US role in Cuba. It's not that it surprised me. I knew that I I kind of knew it, but but to find it and have it confirmed sometimes in such uh arresting kinds of stories right like the you know the, the inauguration of a us vice president on cuban soil for example mm. things like that but you know it just it confirmed what i knew and made it that much uh richer and and more and more urgent some another thing that surprised me sometimes were the the ways in which histories and people um, became connected in unexpected ways, right? So I began the chapter on early 20th century Havana with the story of a, of a young girl, uh, her name is Capote. And, you know, I was just reading her, her writing and all of a sudden I realized that the man who built her house was the leader of the race war, of, ni- of the independent party of color and a leader in the so-called race war of 1912. So just seeing mm, the connections mm. kind of just come alive and my research was... Uh, was exciting and then also I kept thinking as I was writing more as I was doing the well, both the research and the writing just the, I felt like my personal connection to the history deepened so for example when I was working on the 1950s uh you know my mother and I, my mother and I left in 1963 as I was working on that the 50s and the early 60s just my sense of the extent to which, you know, I became convinced that this history made me, you know, that it made my parents, it determined so much in their lives and then by extension, my life. I think that sense became a lot stronger as a result of of writing the book. And so my sense of wanting to write it in a way that my parents, I mean, they're never gonna, they won't read it, but, you know that my parents or people like my parents might recognize themselves in it that became much more of a goal as i wrote mm-hmm.
0: and i think that that partially comes across with you, you you play a lot a lot with chronology and kind of historical narrative and you draw on uh michel roff trio's idea of kind of history as narrative versus history as it happened and you you explicitly talk about you know this idea but then you kind of demonstrate it throughout the book with, with these anecdotes that you incorporate, um, which I find really, really uh, engaging. Um, but I wanted to kind of ask you about the ways in which um, understandings of Cuban history have shifted over time. We could think about maybe in the U.S. amongst uh, Cubans in the United States, and perhaps also U.S. politicians. How do you mm-hmm. see that dynamic play out as history as narrative and history as it happened within the kind of way in which uh, we think about Cuba? In the United States?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it, it all depends on what moment you're looking at, right? So the, I think Cuba's been kind of part of, you know, Americans in general are familiar, have some familiarity with Cuba, and they have for a really long time, for generations and even, and even centuries, but their conception of what Cuban history is, is definitely, it's different at different moments. So for example, you know, the, the the history of Cuban independence and of the Spanish American War and of US involvement in that process created a really strong sense for many Americans that uh, that that the US helped Cuba achieve its independence and therefore that the you know Cuba owed the US a debt of gratitude. And that was a powerful sentiment in the you know early in the 20th century, but we see it affect. For example, the way the Cuban Revolution is understood, Cuban Revolution of 1959 is understood in the U.S. So when uh, when tensions begin to rise between the two governments after 1959, you have U.S. politicians or even President Eisenhower saying, "You know, we we freed them, we we helped them, we didn't do that so they could become communists." So this this sense of 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 U.S you know magnanimity in relation to Cuba has really shaped American conceptions of of Cuban of Cuban history for for a lot of the 20th century. I think more recently, um, the the most dominant, I think American view of Cuba has you know in, in some sense erases all that early history. and in popular American culture, Cuba becomes uh, Fidel Castro and 1959. Without that much attention to to the ways in which the earlier relationship and the earlier history shaped '59 and everything that came that came after.
0: Yeah, I, I would like to kind of focus in uh, on that aspect because uh, you do obviously cover the Cuban Revolution in a really '59 uh, Revolution in a really engaging way. But in doing so, you try to decenter Fidel Castro. Um, you have at one point in the. Chapter 23, you say, quote, people interested in Cuba often make the mistake of thinking too much about Fidel Castro, and you go on to say this is perfectly, you know, a reasonable uh, thing to do and understandable, um, and and you kind of decenter Castro and show the longer genealogy of a lot of the ideas that came to be the foundation of the 1959 revolution, like agrarian reform, the anti-corruption measures, uh, expansion of education, all these factors that. Uh, that became iconic uh, and associated with the revolution. Um, can we talk a little? Can Can you do a little bit of work here to um, place some of the '59 revolution in this longer genealogy? What were the main kind of antecedents um, in in the earlier period, not just the immediate ones, but um, that kind of uh, led up to it? That a lot of listeners and perhaps your readers, who just kind of think of Fidel Castro in the Cold War context might not be familiar with.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, this is true for Americans, but also even sometimes for uh, for Cuban-Americans who, um, you know, younger Cuban-Americans, say, um, who don't know that that earlier history, the way it's narrated sometimes, it seems like Fidel Castro just came out of the blue, right? And then determined everything. And part of, part of what I try to show is that the ideas that... Um, that he invoked the 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 some of the practices that he used in opposing uh, Batista and then um, you know consolidating his power these are these were all things that that had a, a long history in Cuban politics so uh, there's a long history of struggle for social rights so for things like agrarian reform or workers' rights or um, literacy. Right. And those things, they were present, um, for example, in the 1933 revolution. They were present in the 1940 constitution. So he didn't invent those demands. And, you know, many, many Cubans expressed them and shared them and, and pushed and fought for them. For, for generations before the revolution of 59. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to, yeah. to stress. And then the other thing is that even in the revolution itself, even in the struggle against Batista, Fidel was really one revolutionary among many. He would come to dominate by the end of that struggle, but that was not at all clear in the beginning of the struggle. And if you look at who was fighting and mobilizing and writing and organizing you know from 1952 on there were many people in in cities there were students there were workers there were housewives uh, catholic students and all kinds of uh, of other people who were who were you know who who did their best to fight against uh, Batista and in the beginning uh really up you know through the through late you know mid to late 1950s through mid to late 1957 or late summer 57, Fidel wasn't the most uh, prominent, or even the one that was, you know, guaranteed to. to To he, it wasn't clear that he was going to be the last one standing, right? So um, that that it worked out that way, but it wasn't predestined to happen that way. Just as it wasn't predestined to be end up being a communist revolution.
0: That's that's really helpful, and I think you know, it speaks to something else the book does really well, which is to critically approach national mythmaking, uh, both on the US side and on the Cuban side. So, um, you know, certainly with the Cuban revolution of 59, there's a lot of mythology associated with that, that perhaps influences both how um, Cubans themselves understand their history and um, people in the US. And of course, it, this myth-making has been a constant... Process to a large extent, but I wanted to kind of focus in on one aspect of it, which is kind of the, the the role of race in Cuban history and the idea of kind of racial harmony in in Cuba. This idea that was promoted. Could you talk a little bit about where this idea comes from and how it's changed over time during the successive periods, like the thirty three Revolution, the you know the Constitution nineteen forty, and the fifty nine Revolution?
1: Yeah. It is, it is a constant in, in Cuban history. And I, I think that the most influential idea about race and its relationship to nationality emerged uh, in the very late 19th century uh, out of the struggle for independence. And its main proponent was uh, the you know, famous Cuban uh, writer and activist and organizer, José Martí, who posited that that Cuban nationality somehow transcended race that Cubans were more than black or white. They had fought for independence together. And in that process, they had become uh, not only equal, but but Cuban above all. And that idea was really powerful at the time in terms of defeating Spanish arguments against Cuban nationality, right? For, for, For most of the 19th century, Spain and its allies had said Cuba could not be independent because if it tried, it would there would be a slave rebellion, it would be another Haiti, et cetera, et cetera. And that idea of a of a of a nationality and of a nationalism and a patriotism that that ended slavery and that and that welcomed and tried to forge racial equality was really powerful. Right. So but having said that, that what it described, what it aspired to was just that. It was an aspiration. It never actually became reality, right? There wasn't equality on the ground. There was still rampant discrimination in terms of uh, employment, access to education, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that happens throughout the 20th century, and you see it at the beginning of the Republic, you see it in 1933, you see it in 1940, you see it with the revolution of 1959. And that is black intellectuals and activists arguing that they are not equal, that they are discriminated against. And you see them pressing for their rights by forming a party or introducing uh, anti-racist legislation, et cetera, et cetera. And when they do that, the mainstream response has traditionally been that, that that very call for rights is racist, that that very call for rights is divisive and dangerous. And you see that language, I mean, it comes up obviously in 1912 with the race war of 1912. You see it in the 1940 Constitution when the delegates are discussing um, a, a, an article against that that that, that prohibits racial discrimination. You read the, the the proceedings. You have all these uh, white conservative delegates saying this is dangerous to bring up. This is this this is divisive. It's uncuban, right? They're using the same language as, as had been used at the beginning of the of the 20th century, and then you see it again in 1959 when Fidel Castro comes to power. Black activists, say, you know, tell him you have to you it won't you know di- discrimination won't disappear just because there's been a revolution. You have to actively work on it but uh, but the commitment to work on it really and seriously and deeply did not was not there and so it it didn't happen and when black activists called attention to it again the response was that's divisive no conviene it's inconvenient it's dangerous we're not doing that unity is more important and in after 1959 it became unity against against US empire or external and internal enemies and so on so always this idea that Black Cubans have to wait for their rights uh, has been, um, you know, it, I mean, it, it hasn't been exactly the same, but it's reappeared in these critical moments for the whole 20th century and even even to the present, you know. Hmm. I don't know if you, if you want me to go there, yeah. but in the recent protests, for example, this summer, many of the protesters were Black. And yeah. what, what uh, supporters of the government ended up writing and tweeting and so on was, how could how could they protest the revolution gave them everything it used mm. that language right which is the same language that that people used at the end of the 19th century how could black veterans press for their rights when mm. when independence had given them everything and independence had brought them into history right so it's this expectation of black gratitude and and black patience and black forbearance that that's been a constant more or less for for over a hundred years, well
0: over a hundred years. Well, thank you for taking us to the present day because it is really interesting to see um, how these are kind of recurrent, this rhetoric is very changes obviously, but is present in in many periods. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, this book with its chronological scope, um, you know, uh, these types of books, this genre of book, older studies might've focused more on just the kind of political forces or the economic forces, or perhaps the, the natural forces. You're doing all of that, but you're inserting these anecdotes. You're giving it a lot of texture. I wanted to just ask about when you were preparing to write this book in the research process, were you rereading some of those kind of um, e- existing studies that try to tell the entire history of Cuba from you know, either colonial or pre-colonial period to present? And what, what was your, you know what was it like to read those and then think about how you wanted to put together your narrative.
1: Yeah. I, I did read in those books, you know, things like Perez or Hugh Thomas or, mm-hmm. you know, on the Cuban side, Guerre Sanchez or Julio Le Rivera and all, you know, Levi Marrero, but I tended not to read them, you know, I didn't read them and then begin, right? I would read particular parts. As I was working on a particular part, because with this kind of book, it's not you know it's over 500 years. It's not like you can research it all and then write. So, so I did it very, um, you know, I did it in in, in little chunks or or nuggets, mm-hmm. and I always tried to vary what I read. So I would read things like general histories, but I would read uh, memoirs, or I would read I would just I just tried to read as intensely as I could in these really concentrated spurts, and just vary so that I was reading. Things that would give me different kinds of voices, and some of it was then somebody would mention something that I thought, oh, that's interesting, and I've never heard that before. Say like the inauguration of of a uh, mm-hmm. U.S. vice president on a Cuban sugar plantation, right? So that was mentioned in passing um, in um, in a book by Gerald Horn, and I knew, you know, yes, it's an anecdote, but it's also a perfect anecdote anecdote because it kind of it just captures both. Uh, the the economic links between Cuba and the U.S. in the age of slavery. It captures U.S. interest in, in annexing and you know U.S. expansionism towards Cuba. So it was a perfect anecdote for that. But then I just kind of would go in a rabbit hole and just find out everything that I could about mm. that particular person and that event and the inauguration. And then I would build out from that. So it was very much like doing different kinds of research all at the same time uh, you know, big scope, big picture things, and then deep, deep diving into things that seem particularly rich and interesting for me.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's done incredibly well throughout and, um, yeah, it, it's made me kind of rethink about a a lot of aspects of Cuban history. Um, we've been kind of talking about how the United States, U S history is kind of bound up in all of this, in the history of Cuba and the United States, it's obviously a central part of mm-hmm. Cuban history and, and this book, something you try to highlight. Um, I wanted to ask about whether you found it difficult at times to tell the story of Cuba and the United States without perhaps overemphasizing the, the role of the United States. And I'm thinking uh, something if you, uh, in the instance where you're able to, you, you avoid this obviously is with the, the way you talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, it's an event that is typically framed with the United States and the Soviet Union. Could you just speak about, a bit about how you approached writing about that from a more right. Cuban perspective?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, in general, that was the issue of how to deal with the U- U.S. Even though I, I knew that it, it's a central theme and a central player, but I knew that like the. the that the book couldn't only be that mm. uh, so it was more a question of kind of shifting our perspective so in the case of the missile crisis and also with the bay of pigs i did this those are events that uh obviously the u.s is is a central key player it's been written a lot about from a u.s perspective most of the documentation is produced by the u.s uh right so you have all these uh, state department records cia records all these you know Declassified materials that are really that are really rich and uh, and important for the study, but I also knew that I did not want to tell the story that way. So uh, in the missile crisis, I knew I would narr- I knew I would narrate the thirteen days, right? The Khrushchev, uh, Kennedy, Castro, but I purposely made the decision to start that story in the little town in Cuba where the missiles were first found. And I started with the arrival of the missiles and the people in the town being awakened in the middle of the night by the trucks bringing the missiles and trying to figure out what is going on. So I have them, you know, peering, trying to peer out their windows with the police telling them to step back and not look, right, to remind us that they're, they're the ones who are on the front lines of all this. They're the ones who are experiencing it firsthand and that you can't. You can't tell the story of the missile crisis without having them having them be part of the of the story. So that's what I tried to do with the Bay of Pigs too. I you know I started in the swamp and just told told a kind of a, very quickly because there wasn't much space. You know, did a very uh, like an introduction to the swamp, to its ecology, to its to its people going back centuries, just to remind the reader that. No matter what the Americans wanted, you know they could never land on on an empty beach. I mean, they're, they're, these places where American Empire finds itself are are places with deep, rich histories, and that you can't explain what happens without without understanding that deep, rich history of a place. So that's what I tried to do.
0: Yeah, and it, it's a it seems to be a, a really difficult balancing act, but you you do it incredibly well throughout. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit to thinking about the writing process for this book. Um, it's you have a very strong voice throughout uh, that is, you know, personal, as I mentioned at the beginning, but also very scholarly, um, and you move between those two voices really elegantly. And the book is is a pleasure to read um, and very accessible, I think, to to a general reader. Um, and for someone like me who's studying Cuba, I also learned a lot and um, reading about the chapters on my period um, what was it like finding that voice was it difficult at first could you just talk a bit about adjusting from the kind of um, you know writing for an academic audience to a, to a more general one?
1: yeah I would say that even in my academic writing I mean I've always I've always tried to write in a way that, that's accessible. That's not jargony. So I think it's always been a goal. Uh, when writing this, it just I just felt even a little freer. So, you know, all of a sudden I realized, oh, I, there's an I. I mean, meaning me. And I was like, well, that's okay. I'll leave it for now and then decide. Or, or a one sentence, a one word sentence. Perhaps, you know, like mm. that I perhaps, period. I, I would I probably wouldn't have done that in my earlier books. And this time it's like I would just it was a little liberating just to write and let myself do it. And then I didn't always make the decision on the spot. Uh I would just leave it and and then I said I would decide later. And sometimes when I brought in, not not so much in the introduction where it is where I do tell a personal story, sometime in, in the other parts of the book I bring in personal things. So you know, my mother leaving, you know, at the airport, the security woman feeling the the earrings I was wearing, the gold post mm-hmm. I was wearing in my ear, or my mother being on her way to work when she saw Batista going into, you know, Columbia barracks when he staged the coup in 52, right? You know, these stories like that, that I've heard all my life. And, and I would just, when they were I felt like when they were relevant or they were part of what I was illustrating, I put them in, but then I wasn't, I, you know, I'd never done that before. So I put them in in brackets and then, and they stayed in brackets for a long time. And then in the end, I just said, yeah, I'm going to have them in there. And I just took the brackets out. So, so it was both, it was, you know, so on some level, it was just what I had been doing before, but may, but with even, but with more freedom and it was more fun Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes I learned as I went and I wasn't sure. So I would bracket it and then, and then decide later. Mm.
0: And For you in the process of writing it, obviously you um, study in, in your earlier books, you're concentrating on an earlier period. You don't uh, concentrate on the 20th century and and 21st century. What was the hardest uh, portion of the book for you to write into that kind of overlap with, was it because you weren't as familiar with the time period or was it because perhaps you were too familiar and wanted to like, uh, had too much information that you wanted to pack in? Or yeah.
1: Well, there were parts that were hard for different reasons. So mm-hmm. the 20th century before the revolution, uh, say, you know, not, like 1902 to 1952. Mm-hmm. Parts of that were really hard, not so, much, you know, in part because it's not my period, but also because I feel like the way it, uh, a lot maybe especially for the 1933 to 52 mm-hmm. period, a lot of the, that history is political history. And since I didn't want the book to be straight political history, it was sometimes, I found that, um, I found that sometimes difficult also the fact that you have all these revolutions and coups and you have to narrate them because you can't leave them out but you you know you don't want the book to be only that so i thought that was difficult the revolution was also difficult too not uh just because because it's so contested and it's such a landmine and uh yeah so but but, it, but at the same time it was uh it was kind of a a fun it was hard uh but it was a fun well no I, well yeah it was it was a tough it was, it was tough sometimes rewarding i would say not always fun but but yeah, writing mm-hmm. about the revolution just because it's either it's it, it's so polarized and you can write something and imagine how someone's going to read it and how mm-hmm. the opposite of that person is going to read it right so mm-hmm. so there, there's a lot of that
0: um i want to now kind of shift to thinking about um some For for listeners uh, who might not be too familiar with Cuban history, one of the kind of defining um, pieces of uh, aspects of the U.S.-Cuban relationship is the Platt Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe you could just speak a bit about what the Platt Amendment was, why was it so important, and just this idea of sovereignty and the importance of sovereignty for Cuba and how that has been an essential part of the rhetoric of the many Cuban revolutions, including the 59 revolution, and to this day, how it is still a huge theme in U.S.-Cuban relations.
1: Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the Platt Amendment is something... Well, before we get to... The the Platt Amendment is hugely important. You can't understand it at all Hmm. without saying a tiny bit of something about Cuban independence, and that is to say that the struggle for Cuban independence took to Cuban independence from Spain, I should say, was a 30-year struggle from 1868 to 1898. Right? Uh, Three wars, Deep concerted organizing and writing in favor of Cuban independence, a process that overlapped with the end of slavery and with the mobilization of 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 slaves and former former enslaved people. Okay, so that's 30 years. The U.S. intervenes at the very end of that process in what is known as the Spanish-American War, and then occupies Cuba militarily from. 1899 to 1902. Now in that so the U.S is the ruler of Cuba and when the Spanish flag comes down, it's the American one that replaces it. What the Americans did you know over that time was was change the goalpost for Cubans. So when they first intervened, the Americans said that they would leave Cuba once it was pacified after you know after the last war. Then Cuba was pacified and the Americans didn't leave. And they said, we'll leave when Cubans prove themselves capable of self-government. Then you had elections and a constitutional convention and all went smoothly and still the Americans weren't leaving. So the Americans changed the goalposts again and said basically that what would prove that the Cubans were capable of self-government was their acceptance of something called the Platt Amendment. And the Americans wanted the Platt Amendment adopted into the Cuban constitution. And it was as as an appendix to to that original charter. So what the Platt Amendment did was give the US the right to intervene in Cuba militarily, uh, uninvited by the Cuban government. It limited the Cuban government's ability to incur debt or to enter into a treaty with um, with a third country. It set aside land for what became the Guantanamo naval base. So basically it limited Cuban sovereignty, right? Um, because it, it made the it explicitly made the task of preserving life, liberty, et cetera. It put that in the hands of the US government rather than the, the you know, ostensibly sovereign Cuban government. And Cubans resented it deeply and and um and it shaped and a lot of what Cuban history was in the first decades of the Republic, the U.S. intervened multiple times as a result of the Platt Amendment. So it's something that, and, and the Americans said, that this, said, said it themselves, you know, the, the, the U.S. governor of Cuba said it at the time, and, and, and Cuban politicians said it at the time, that under the Platt Amendment, Cuba basically uh, didn't really have independence, and mm. or they had a fiction of a of a republic, and so um, so that's the history that's part you know that that's that, that's you know that Fidel Castro has inv- has invoked or had you know invoked for, for mm. decades and decades the idea of the U.S. coming in at the end of Cuban independence and frustrating the revolution for for um, independence from Spain of imposing the Platt Amendment and then intervening uh, multiple times. So, so that, uh, and I think that is something that, for the most part, uh, American statesmen and, you know, general American readers, you know, didn't didn't deeply understand, either deeply or, or, or maybe at all, so that when the Cuban Revolution came in 1959, when it happened, um, Americans rushed to understand it. Uh, especially as tensions heighten, they they put it always within the frame of the Cold War and of the U.S. struggle with the Soviet Union and the struggle between um, communism and and capitalism. But the Cuban revolution, to really understand it, can't be understood only in that frame. You have to put it in the frame of this, of a long struggle and this long kind of confrontation Mm -hmm. over over Cuban sovereignty uh, that dates back to the end of the 19th century. Mm.
0: Well, thank you for that overview. It's really helpful. Um, it, it is interesting, especially to see how the sovereignty question plays such a large part or concern plays such a large part in fields like public health uh, in Cuba, kind of thinking of the current moment, the pandemic of Cuba developing three different, um, you know, vaccines um, uh, and using those. And I guess eventually has plans to to, to sell them uh, to the rest of Latin America. This is it's just fascinating to see. The, the legacy of these things, and then manifesting in our in our current yeah. uh, period. I don't know if you want to comment on that, but yeah, just I mean,
1: thought. you know, in general, um, yeah, it, I think because Americans haven't understood uh, that you know the, the significance of the idea of sovereignty uh, in in Cuban history they don't realize i think when they say things that 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 are completely counterproductive for them to say you know mm-hmm. so um yeah so you know the so when the americans start talking about um, or not just you know not the american government but american people <clears throat> or or cuban americans talk about a possible intervention or humanitarian intervention etc without realizing the you know the how deep the rhetoric of sovereignty is and how important it's been. It's just, it doesn't, it's just completely counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I want to come to the the title of the book. And I know you've likely gotten a lot of questions about that. And you, you talk about it in your introduction, but you know, and you called Cuba an American history. Um, I think throughout the book, you destabilize the idea of America and American and what it means, like to whom this, label belongs? Uh, is it Cubans American? How does it apply to Latin America? And all this raises lots of questions about what we mean by, by the idea of like Latin America versus American. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that really generative and and useful because in our kind of everyday conversations, we tend to not think so much about that. Um, could you talk a little bit about
1: uh, uh, I mean yeah. I, right so there's a way in which i could have just called the book cuba a history right mm-hmm. but it just didn't seem it, seem, it seemed it seemed sounded boring yeah, <laughs> on yeah. Some level it sounded a little too just straightforward and, and flat and so i uh, my, my thinking was well there were several things that led me to, to 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 go for that title one is that because i'm writing in english for a u.s audience so uh I think those readers will be particularly interested in the role of the U.S. in all this. So mm-hmm. in that way, it's an American history referring to the U.S., right? Uh, there's also, but part of what I, what I wanted to do or what I think is that uh, any history of a place that is so deeply connected to the United States, right? To study that history means that you are gaining perspective on the U.S. itself. Um, so while it's a history of Cuba, I do really think that reading it could give American readers a different kind of perspective into the U.S., Mm. right? Because the U.S. is in the book, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot, but in ways that maybe American readers haven't always encountered because it's coming from kind of the outside in. So I'd like to think of it as um, sometimes I refer to it as a kind of shadow history of the U.S., where mm. readers will will learn, you know, will will might might glimpse at different moments their own country, but through the eyes of another, or th- mm. seen from the outside in. So that's mm. partly why I called it an American history, and then also because the term itself is so is contested and unclear, and I and I like that, you know, that. Americans often think that it applies to them, but for a lot of the world, it doesn't just apply to them, right? It applies as much to, you know, Canadians and um, Mexicans and Argentines and Mm -hmm. Cubans and and everyone of the Americas. So I felt like just that in itself is quite, you know, does what I just told you, right? It kind of gets Mm -hmm. U.S. readers to see the U.S. maybe slightly different because they're looking at it from the outside in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's an incredibly valuable exercise for for a lot of um, Americans, U.S. citizens, to and residents to to go through. Um, and then,
1: sorry, I could just say something yeah. else. I mean, yeah. when you talked about the personal at the mm. beginning, I mean, it kind of links with that too. Then, in some sense, um, you know, for for someone who grows up, you know, between two places, or someone who's an immigrant you you do that all the time right you see you know you see you know you see the country you're living in from the outside in right from the perspective of your parents you see your parents or your your home community from the perspective of your adopted community right mm-hmm. so I feel like like that's something again it's i feel like it's part of my dna so kind of I wanted to make that uh come alive in the book a little bit it's in my method.
0: Yeah, yeah, those, those lines are very much blurred for for uh, lots of folks. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. So a, a related question, um, so it's very clear that the U- US history and Cuban history are very much entangled because of lots of cultural relations, political, economic, et cetera. Um, but what about Cuba's relationship with the rest of Latin America? And I, I wanna ask this question both in terms of within scholarship and within historiography, Cuba's place within, you know, Latin American studies and thinking about Cuban studies as a field, how do those interact, but also just in the ways in which perhaps Cubans or Cuban Americans think about themselves vis-a-vis the rest of Latin America. I always found it kind of very fascinating there because there does seem to be, at least in the, in the historiography, a, quite a, a, a separation. And this is true in other fields like Mexican studies, I'd imagine. But could you just speak about that?
1: yeah I mean, I think it's a it's a I think it's a fascinating question. I remember one time hosting an event uh, and we had um, you know at the Center for Latin American Studies here, we had someone on the panel who was Cuban refer to uh, uh, someone who asked the question or who was on the panel who was Bolivian, and refer to them, oh, as the Latin American said almost mm-hmm. as if he himself as a Cuban was not Latin American. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just, it was this interesting moment. So I do think there's a, there's a really powerful, powerful Cuban exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's, you know, th- there's multiple sources uh, for it. Some of it is historical. The fact that Cuban history doesn't always follow the, the, you know, the, the typical Latin American chronology going back to um, independence in particular, right. That Cuba mm-hmm. was, was a, uh, so late in, in achieving its independence and um and so on but so i feel like it's you know and 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 the and the fact that the us intervened you know intervened militarily and actually although the us did that in many many places but mm. that um actually scratched that because the us as we know did that yeah. you know in dozens of places especially in the beginning of the of the uh of the 20th century but i do think the particular history of cuban independence and um sometimes um has it you know sets it aside the same thing with the history of the cuban revolution right that uh that you that it the fact of its relationship to the soviet union Mm -hmm. in the, the cold war um very close relationship to the soviet union in the midst of the cold war also gave it a particular kind of particular and singular kind of profile. So I think there's some actually historical reasons for why um, mm. that happens sometimes. But I also think that uh, there's there's, there's important, there, you know, obviously Cuba is uh, a Latin American country and, and the actors, mm. the historical actors themselves, you know, deal with that all the time and sometimes want to highlight that. So uh, in terms of thinking about, um, the 1930s, for, or the 1920s or 30s, and the strong links to movements in Mexico and, and Latin America are really important. Uh, similarities between, say, the Cuban Constitution of 1940 and other progressive constitutions uh, and um, agrarian laws across Latin America in the same period. Thinking about even, even independence itself, when, you know, the extent to which Latin American countries thought about Cuban independence in the 19th century, there's a history there that's a broader Uh, American, America's history, um, you know, that, you know, that comes in and out of focus in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, But that I think, um, I think there's room to do much more with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in the book, partially, I mean, you, you see moments when like Cuban politicians or elites invoke, when they decide to invoke the Cuban identity versus the kind of Latin American identity and kind of thinking about, the advantages and disadvantages of both. And it's a really fascinating yeah. uh, dynamic in the history.
1: Right. And of course, Mati himself. I mean, might, mm-hmm. you know, so Mati himself with his essay America American, a lot of his writing. I mean, and the fact that he wrote for so many Latin American newspapers and served as consult for Latin American countries in the U S that, that, you know, that there's a, there's a strong pan Latin American consciousness that, you know, that, that, that's there as well, that I think there that hasn't been explored enough.
0: You used the term Cuban exceptionalism before, and I kind of like thinking about that and thinking about sort of comparative exceptionalisms. But I'm wondering for you, when you were writing the book, and maybe this happened earlier in your previous work, were there moments when you were thinking about stories that you had heard about Cuba, maybe as a child or later on in life, and you're kind of in the archive or reading secondary work and had to kind of be like, well, this is just wrong. This is clearly something that is part of the mythology, or or kind of an exceptionalist claim that doesn't really hold up. Were there moments when you were, you know, ha- perhaps having some cognitive dissonance of you know what you had heard versus what you had encountered in in as a scholar?
1: I'm actually, I'm sure there's many moments like that. The one that comes to mind is less. Uh, I mean, it's not anything I had heard as a child, but this idea that is so it's so central in, in Cuban historical writing um, or historical writing about Cuba, which has to do with independence. And because Cuban independence does not follow the Latin American norm, right? Um, As you know, most of Latin America became independent between 1810 and 1826 and Cuba didn't. And so there's a way in which uh, 19th century Cuban history is often uh, posed as a question, like why why didn't Cuba become independent? Why was Cuban independence so late? And that's often the, train, the term that's used—is this term of, of lateness. But then I remember, as I got more into Caribbean history, and <laughs> thought, wait a minute, it's not late at all. Actually, if you think about the Caribbean, uh, there's no norm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's Haiti, there's Santo Domingo, there's Cuba, there's the British Islands, there's the French. You know, that, like there, mm-hmm. there is no norm. And so the, the central, um, the central question or central theme of 19th century history kind of goes out the window, right? That exceptionalism vanishes when you, when you just shift the context in which you put it a little bit.
0: Mm. Um, thanks for that. Um, I was wondering, this book, we've been talking about how it's in a lot of ways aimed at an American audience um, or US audience. Are, are there plans to have this book translated into Spanish? And if so, how do you think a Latin American would understand, I mean, a Cuban or someone from a Latin American, another Latin American country, would, um, you know, would think about this book and how would their kind of reaction perhaps differ um, from, you know, an American U.S. reader?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I'm hoping that it gets translated. I very much want it to get translated into Spanish. Uh, There's no firm plans yet. So so we'll just have to see. Uh, I think people in Cuba would be, you know, really interested uh, to read it. And I think they will, I think they will, they may not agree with everything in it. I mean, they won't agree amongst themselves. Right. So like, but, um, but I think they'll, they'll appreciate that, that it is this kind of more, you know, what you might call like epic history on a human scale that it's sort of peopled history. Mm -hmm. I think that will appeal to them. I think um I think they will see it as balanced, um, some of them. But so I think, and then in terms of how it would be read elsewhere, that, I mean it, it's um I don't know. We'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see. Uh I wonder sometimes with Spanish it, how it would be read in Spain, for instance, mm. where uh the vision of Cuba is very different uh than in Latin America or in Cuba itself. Um yeah. Yeah, we'll just have to wait yeah.
0: and see. I'd imagine that's like a really satisfying part about writing a book. You you write the thing, you're working on it, maybe you show it to a few people to read drafts, but then it's out in the world. You're sort of done with it, but you hear people's reactions yeah, either through right? you know book reviews or doing events, yeah, uh, podcasts, whatever the you know. So it's I'd imagine it's yeah. usually probably pretty satisfying. Uh yeah, it is. Uh, like <laughs> times when it's not, but uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. so as a as a final question, um I just wanted to ask what your Thinking about doing next? What's what Do you have something in the works? Um,
1: I don't yeah. have anything, I don't have anything in the works. I have some ideas, but they're all very premature. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah, well, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, this after this is kind of a, a tour de force to to, to write a book of this length, but I have so. a really
1: hard time not knowing what I'm working on. So, I keep like, what am I yeah. working on? What am I I'm trying to figure that out? Yeah, that yeah, I'm trying yeah. to. I'm trying to, um, actually, I wrote this book because I one reason was that I couldn't decide what to do next. And Mm. the second book was, you know, the second book was on Cuba and Haiti. And I had decided that I wanted to go back and do uh, a Cuban book, not continue the the Cuba-Haiti work. And, but I couldn't decide what to do. Like, do I, you know, so uh, I had all these different ideas from different periods. And I thought, I'll just write all of it. I'll write the history of Cuba. And, and then that'll let me see what I'm most interested in and that'll be my next, you know, monograph, but actually writing the book did not, I, th- I found it all, most of it really interesting and I couldn't decide. Yeah.
0: It, so. Well, great. Well, I'll look forward yeah. to, to whatever it is that, that comes
1: next.
0: Ada, thank you so much for your time, for this wonderful conversation and, and most importantly for the, for the book.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for reading it and for, and for, and for talking about it. It was fun.